Amen. God is good. He is risen. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. He is risen. Praise the Lord. You can be seated. It is good to know that our Lord is alive and well and on the throne. That's what this Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, commonly called Easter, that's what we are told on this great day. Christ was crucified, died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures and was seen by witnesses is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He is alive. And it is so good to know that we worship and praise a living God, a God who is over all of the things that trouble us, a God that we can turn to at any time, that we can come to his throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace at our time of need. How many of you have had a time of need for mercy and grace this week? Absolutely. You know, last night at 10 o'clock, we had some friends over for dinner last night. They left. I knew that I had to put a couple of things up on our church's website for the service this morning. And I went into my office at home to put stuff there and I go to the website and it just kept spinning and spinning. And I went, okay, well, the server probably needs to be rebooted. So then I went to the system where we run all of our server and I went in there and it all looked very different than it normally looks. And I was looking and our server isn't there and our backup server isn't there and our backups aren't there and all of our file servers for all of our audio for 14 years is not there. Apparently, uh, the only thing I can figure out is that some demonically influenced person hacked our system and like completely destroyed our website. So from about 10 o'clock last night until two in the morning, I was rebuilding what's called a LAMP server on a different system so that we would have a website for those who are watching online because we are live streaming this morning. And so praise the Lord, you know, it's there. Uh, so, you know, this last Monday, I, I got a call about three weeks ago, randomly, from a guy who said, hey, you know, a, a friend of ours, a mutual friend named Victor Marks, he gave me your phone number, and we're doing a documentary on spiritual warfare, and he said that we should interview you for this documentary, and so can we do that? And I said, sure, that sounds great. And so he sent me a few dates, and the date that worked well was this last Monday. So we sat back here in the back of the sanctuary for like four hours recording all these things about spiritual warfare. And even while we were recording it, I was thinking, this is never good. <laughs> It's like one of the things that pastors understand is that when they are talking on a topic, teaching on a subject, you can guarantee it's as if the enemy goes, all right, let's see if that's really true. And so did that three, four hour long recording on spiritual warfare and then, you know, kind of the culmination of it, our, our website hacked and completely destroyed. So it is what it is. God is still good and on the throne. Amen. He is alive and well, and we are blessed to worship him. Now, if you have never read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I really hope that you will take the time to do so. I'm sure that there are more than a few of you here who have read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and maybe you've read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John multiple times. And if you have, or if you do read through the four Gospels, you will... I believe, no doubt, be drawn to one of the characters in the Gospels, one of the standout characters in the Gospels. And even when I say standout character in the Gospel, some of you are already assuming whom I'm going to say. Peter was one of Jesus's first followers, one of the first to come and follow after the Lord. When 
His brother, Andrew, came and found him after Andrew had met Jesus. And he came and he said to Peter, come, you need to see, we've found the one who is the Messiah. And Peter came along with Andrew and met Jesus. And a short time after that, Jesus came to where Peter was fishing because he was a fisherman and said, I want you to come and follow me. And upon seeing God do a miraculous work through Christ, Peter followed Jesus. As he was in his presence, he said, I'm not worthy to be in your presence, and bowed down before him and called him his Lord and his God. Peter was likely the oldest of Jesus's followers. He, we find in the scriptures, has a mother-in-law, so he's married, and he seems like he's probably the only of the apostles who was, and so he's certainly among the oldest of the apostles, if not the oldest. And Peter is the one that can be counted on in the gospel narrative, to always be the one to speak up and to speak out. He is the one that always had something to add, always had something to say. Maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you are that person. It's like somebody's talking about something and you, you got something. You got to say it, always. Peter seems to be that guy. I find that I can kind of identify with Peter. And so he always had something to say. He could be counted on to speak up and put words to what was probably on a lot of people's minds. Many times when you're reading through the Gospels and Peter speaks up, you kind of think, I'm thinking that John and Thomas were thinking the same thing, but they were like, I'll just keep my mouth shut, Peter will say it. (laughs) And so Peter's the one who would speak up, and because he's the one who would often put words to what other people were thinking, he's also the one that would often put his foot in his mouth. And you see that throughout the Gospels. Peter just putting his foot in his mouth. He is the outspoken one. It was Peter who spoke up when Jesus asked the question of his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah, come back from the dead. Some say this, some say that. And Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And as soon as he did, Jesus looked at Peter, whose true name was Simon. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him, kind of like a nickname, if you will. And he said, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon bar Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You can imagine Peter probably stood a little bit taller there at that moment when Jesus said, God, the father just spoke through you. You're the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter said. Matthew chapter 16. It was Peter who spoke out when Jesus asked his nearest disciples. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus was giving a teaching that was a hard teaching for people to kind of grab onto. He said some weird things from time to time, Jesus did. And in John 6, he said, You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people were like, I didn't sign up for cannibalism. And so people started to leave. They were having a hard time with what Jesus was speaking and teaching. And so Jesus turns to his apostles, the 12, and he says, will you guys leave as well? And it was Peter who spoke up and said, Lord, where else will we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Also, in John chapter 6, verse 69, it says, also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There you go. It's like, at least a double on that one. Where else will we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. We think that you're the Christ, the son of God. So he, he's the outspoken one. 
the one who you could trust would stand up and speak. It was Peter, as the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee, a place that Peter knew really well from his childhood. He had been there living on the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman by trade. His family was, were fishermen. So he grew up there. And there he is on the Sea of Galilee. And you kind of assume as you read through the Gospels that Peter's kind of the lead guy when Jesus isn't there. And you see that play out later on in the New Testament story as well. And so they're out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and a great windstorm comes up to the point that they are pretty sure they're gonna die. Now, I imagine this. I have a tendency to kind of imagine how these stories go in my mind. And I, I can see Peter. And he's like doing the Peter thing, telling people what to do. You know, hold on to that line. Get on that oar. You know, all these sorts of things. Barking orders is the thing. I've been in this situation before. I know how to handle this sea. I've lived on this sea. And then the waves get bigger and bigger. And there are certain ways... Uh, the, land, the lay of the land there around the Sea of Galilee where windstorms can come through and just start the thing going pretty good. And it comes to the point where they're like in the middle of the night, they've been fighting this all night long and they are to the point of feeling like we're gonna die. And then they see something on the water that kind of spooked all of them. They think they see a ghost. And there was a fable among those people at that time in that place that just before you die, you'd see a ghost. So now they see this, this premonition, if you will, walking on water. They think it's a ghost. And Jesus is the one walking on water. He speaks to him, calm down, it's me. And Peter, the outspoken one, he says, Lord, if it's you, call me to come out on the water with you. Jesus says, all right, come. And it was Peter who walked on water. Now, of course, he did sink, but he did walk on water for a time. Now, you can no doubt expect that for years to come among the disciples, there was a conversation going back and forth where Peter would use that trump card from time to time. You know, I did walk on water. And I can imagine John would say, yeah, but you did sink. <laughs> so, yeah, but I did, I did walk for a little bit on water. So he was the one who walked on water to Jesus. It was also Peter who had the tenacity to rebuke Jesus, his Lord, to his face. We're told the story in Matthew chapter 16, right after Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. Right after he's told God just spoke through you, it says that Jesus began to prepare his disciples for his suffering and his death. Matthew chapter 16. And as he is telling his disciples, listen, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm gonna suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and they are gonna put me to death. It says that Peter began to rebuke him to his face, telling him, not so, Lord, this will not happen to you. To which Jesus says to Peter, also recorded in Matthew 16, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me because you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. Amazing that you could go from saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. God, the Father, has spoken to you and through you. You can go from that to, get behind me, Satan, you're an offense to me, in like four seconds. But Peter was the outspoken one. He was of the 12 apostles, but he was also of a smaller select group, you might say, Three individuals we see that are with Jesus at very key times in the Gospels, Peter, James, and John. 
And so they appear to be the standouts. Peter's the loudmouth, and James and John, they were called the sons of thunder. They're the ones that wanted to call down like lightning or fire on a village because it didn't receive Jesus very nicely. So, you know, I think Jesus probably kept them close because he's like, I'm keeping my eye on you. <laughs> you guys stay right next to me. It's like, you know, I did junior high ministry for a little while. All the youth pastors know. It's like the ones that are the, the ones, you keep them right close to you. You gotta keep your eye on them. Peter was one of those. And so what that means is that Peter was with Jesus at some times where not too many other people were around. One of them is recorded in Matthew chapter 17. They went on a mountaintop in the northern part of the nation of Israel and Jesus was, the scriptures say, transfigured before them. They were able to see his fullness of his glory. And as they did, not only did they see Jesus, but they also saw on that mountaintop with Jesus was Moses, who had been long dead, and Elijah, who had been long dead, and there they are communing with Jesus. And Peter is so overcome with Peter <laughs> that he says, Lord, it's so good that we're here. Let us build three tabernacles and stay here, one for you and Moses and for Elijah. And while he's mid-sentence, the scriptures say that they were overshadowed by a cloud and a voice from heaven effectively said, Peter, shut up. <laughs> the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. That hear him was like, Peter, not now. This is a holy moment. Don't put your foot into it. But it was Peter that was there at that moment. The loud mouth had to speak up. And then Peter with James and John, they were also with Jesus in Mark. In Luke's gospel, it's recorded that Jesus went to go raise a young girl. She was about 12 years old. She had died, raised her from the dead. Peter, James, and John were there to see it. Peter is the outspoken standout in the gospel, and it's hard not to love Peter. And seeing Peter's character play out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would expect that Peter would have kind of a standout position in what we call the Passion Week. Now, the Passion Week is the week that started last Sunday with Palm Sunday, and it comes to a conclusion on Resurrection Sunday. So that whole period of time is the Passion Week. And passion meaning suffering. So Jesus goes through this suffering during the Passion Week, which he is glorified at the end through the resurrection. But during this Passion Week, you would expect that Peter would have some standout moments. And John's gospel, we are told that prior to partaking of the Passover meal with his disciples on the eve before his crucifixion, we're told that the disciples gathered together for a meal in an upper room in Jerusalem. And when they came into the room, so just imagine the picture, if you will, they come into this lowly lit room, some upper room in Jerusalem. The room is ready to partake of the Passover there's some 13 reclining seats there for Jesus and his 12 apostles. And among all the things that are in the room, there is near the door a basin and a pitcher with water and a towel. And Jewish people in that day, they knew exactly what that was for because when you would come into a celebration like that, there would be one who would wash your feet. You would walk around in dusty ground with sandals and as a customary greeting or a time of kind of bringing people into a celebration like that, among the other ritualistic washings you would do, one of the washings would be the washing of the feet. And in the customary way of doing this, the lowest in the hierarchy, the lowest servant ought to have been the one who would wash the feet. 
But they go, they have this meal, and now as they're finishing up the meal in John's gospel, no one's washed anybody's feet. Why is that? Well, it might be because none of the 12 who are always argued who was the greatest, none of them were ready to lower themselves, choose to humble themselves, and wash people's feet. Like, I ain't doing that, I ain't doing that, I ain't doing that. They're looking at it, they're all looking at the water, like, I ain't touching that thing. It's like, you know, John better touch that thing. It's like, you know, Thomas, he's the problem. He should be the one doing that. They're all thinking it. And we're told in John's gospel, in John chapter 13, that at a certain point, Jesus rose from the meal. John chapter 13, verse four, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment. He took the towel and he girded himself. And after that, he poured the water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he was girded with. This is like a major break from protocol. Everybody in that room knew who the, the leader, the master, the rabbi was. That's Jesus. They're all there because of Jesus. He's the one who called them. And then you got all these other guys. You know, Levi, the tax collector. Judas is there. Simon, the zealot. You know, go down the list of all these different individuals. You'd think in that room, there should have been somebody. You'd be like, well, I should probably do this. But Jesus now is the one who gets up. He lays aside his outer garment, puts on a towel, begins to wash his disciples' feet. And then as he's doing this, and I'm probably reading into it, but it just seems like if I'm imagining this whole situation, this is how I'd see it. It seems to me Peter was the last one he came to. And he comes to Peter and with a tone of incredulity, like disbelief, Peter, he says, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus says to him, John chapter 13, verse seven, Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will after this. And Peter said to him, John chapter 13, verse eight, you shall never wash my feet. Kind of like that, I'm passing this test. You guys all failed. You should, have, you should have done what I'm doing right now, but I'm gonna say it, you will never wash my feet. Of course, Jesus, Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then he goes, oh, well, you washed my head and my hands and everything. No, no, that's not what I need to do. It's just your feet that need cleansing in that whole situation. But again, you, just, you see Peter's nature come through, his personality in these passages. Well, like I said, you'd expect that Peter would be the standout, the outspoken one of the Passover. And it's not just in the feet washing situation. At the same gathering, Jesus tells his disciples as they're finishing their meal and getting ready to leave, he says to them, in Matthew 26, it's recorded, he says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Each of you, all 12 of you, are gonna be made to stumble. And Peter had an answer. Matthew 26, verse 33, Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never stumble. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, before this night is over, before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will deny me three times. Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And so said all the disciples. Those are bold words from the standout. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. It's not possible, Jesus. That's not going to happen. And then after his bold proclamation, 
Jesus and his disciples, they leave that upper room, they cross through the old city of Jerusalem, they're going east towards what we know of as the Mount of Olives, probably to the town that Jesus would often resort to when he was staying in Jerusalem called Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And as they cross that way, they would have passed the Temple Mount and then they go through a valley called the Kidron Valley. And at the bottom of the Kidron Valley, there is an olive grove called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus went there with his disciples It's late at night, and he goes there to pray. And he says to his disciples when they get there, I'm very troubled, and I need you to watch and pray with me. And he takes three of his disciples, who do you think it was? Peter, James, and John. Takes them a little bit further off into some hidden away place in the garden, and he says, I'm stressed, basically. I'm exceedingly sorrowful. Will you watch and pray with me? And so he goes a few feet away and he begins to pray. He comes back maybe an hour later and he finds them all asleep. And he wakes them up. Peter, he says to Peter, couldn't you just pray with me one hour? Oh yeah, sorry, Lord. Oh yeah, let's, let's pray, let's pray. He goes away to pray. He comes back a second time. They're all asleep, wakes them up. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, yes, yes, we'll pray, we'll pray. He goes away, third time, he's praying, comes back. They're still asleep. And as he comes back the third time, he rouses them from their sleep, and he says, well, now the time has come. And now the Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of the sinners. And as he's saying these words, who shows up but Judas? And Judas comes leading a gathering of soldiers, the, those that had been commissioned to the high priest, And so some of the high priest servants are there, a detachment of soldiers, and there's Judas. And Judas comes right up to Jesus. He greets him with a kiss. And now the soldiers, that was the sign that the one whom he kisses, you take him, he's the one. And so they lay hands on Jesus. They're arresting him. And what does Peter do? The gospels say that Peter pulled forth a sword. And he jumps into this mix and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Now there were Roman soldiers there and it appears to me that at the very least that Peter was smart enough to not like start a fight with a sword with a Roman soldier. So he just goes, well, I'm gonna, who's the weakest looking guy? That guy, and he cuts off Malchus's ear is the name of the guy. And Jesus stops this whole situation and Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup from which my father has given me? John 18 verse 11. He couldn't watch and pray. And so he figured, I'm gonna save the day with a sword. He couldn't do that either. But Jesus' final words to Peter there in the Garden of Gethsemane were something of a rebuke. Put the sword away, Peter. So what do you do if you're the outspoken standout in that situation? Jesus has now been arrested. Well, if you have your Bibles, open to Luke 12. And let's follow Peter for just a moment. Luke's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 12. I'm sorry, Luke 22, 54. I'm in the wrong place. It looked like a 12. (laughs) Luke 22, verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him and they brought him to the high priest's house. But Peter followed 
at a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him, stared at him for a while. I've seen you before. And she said, you also are, also are of them, of the Nazarene's followers. You're one of them. But he said, I am not the man. And then about an hour after had passed, another confidently affirmed saying, surely this fellow also was with them for he is a Galilean. I'm sorry, verse 58. After a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed saying, surely this fellow also is with them for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. Another one of the gospels says he swears that he does not know. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And, get this, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Their eyes met. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word, how the Lord had said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Hours after this, Jesus would be beaten and condemned and then crucified. And Peter failed. The outspoken strong one. He failed at foot washing. He failed to pray. He failed to protect the Lord. He failed and he forsook the Lord. Not once, not twice, but three times he boldly proclaims, I am not that person. And then he goes out and he weeps bitterly after his eyes meet Jesus' eyes. And that word bitterly, it, it speaks of weeping with great agony, like weeping to the point of uncontrollable, ugly tears. You guys know that reference, ugly tears. And he weeps bitterly because he failed in every way. Years ago, I read a research study on a diagnosable disorder referred to by psychologists as complicated grief. What is complicated grief? Well, it, it's actually one of the things that probably many of you fear. Complicated grief often comes after you've done or said something mean and you've had an argument with someone and tensions are high, passions are inflamed, in an argument, in a heat of passion, you say something that you don't really mean, but you're angry. And that person leaves, and the next thing you hear is a phone call. We're really sorry to inform you, but there's been an accident. Or, we're terribly sorry, but do you know so-and-so? Yes, I know them. There's been a heart attack. Are they going to be okay? No, I'm very sorry. They're gone. Complicated grief often comes in that situation. For years, the word rang in her ears. 
as she told her seven-year-old son, Aaron, you don't need a life vest, you can swim. Those were the last words she said to him before he drowned. And the guilt that continued was overwhelming. We say something like, I wish I would have never met you. We say something like, you'll never amount to anything. You're the worst person I've ever known. And then the last thing you hear is, the door closes as they go and you never see that person again. That's one of the great fears that people have. Complicated grief, unquenchable guilt. The thoughts go over and over and over again in your mind. He'd still be here if I hadn't. She'd still be here if I had. One of the most challenging ones often happens in, in suicide. And sadly, there are more than a few here today who have been touched by the suicide of a loved one. It's very dreadful, horrible. I've been in those situations before and you can't help but ask for weeks and years on end afterwards, if I had only, it's complicated grief. But there's not always an opportunity for the if I would have only, because death sometimes comes suddenly and without warning. And this outspoken standout named Simon, Peter, I wanna suggest to you that he was experiencing some pretty significant complicated grief as he wept bitterly, as he recounted in his mind all those words that he had said, even if every single one of these deny you, I would never deny you, I will die with you. And then a few hours later, aren't you with him? I do not know that man. How dare you? All of that going over and over and over again in his mind. I don't think it's surprising that Peter was not at the cross. The Gospels make it clear he was not there. Peter was not at the tomb. We don't really see Peter after the crucifixion so much. He goes out and he weeps bitterly. And I would suggest that that first night for him was a sleepless night. And I think he probably didn't eat very much on that Sabbath day as he thought about all of those things. His failure compounded and complicated his grief. And sometimes the standouts just want to disappear. And that's what he's trying to do. Just going to disappear. How many times do you think he played out that scenario in his mind over and over and over again? The sword, standing by the fire. All he asked me to do was watch and pray with him. I couldn't even do that. Playing all these things out. How could I deny him? And now I'll never see him again. I'll never be able to make it right. I think that the words of the psalmist apply to Peter over those couple of days. Psalm 6, verse 6, I am weary with my groanings. All night I make my bed to swim, drenching my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. If only I could see him again. If only I could say to him one more time that I love him. Luke 24, verse one. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And then they went in and they did not find the body of Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about about this, that behold, two men 
stood by them in shining garments. And then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was at Galilee, saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And then they returned from the tomb and they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. They ran and they spoke these things. Another account in Mark's gospel of this same situation reads like this in chapter 16, verse six. The angel said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. I love that. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Why does the angel say that? Maybe because Peter is nowhere to be found, not with the disciples. The other disciples are gathered together if Peter's gone. Peter has cut himself out of the group because he failed. Go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Back to Luke 24, verse nine. Then they returned from the tomb and they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told them these things to the apostles and their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them, but Peter. Peter arose and ran to the tomb and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed marveling to himself what had happened. I love those words in Mark 16, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Those two words, and Peter, they remind us of one of the beautiful truths around the resurrection having to do with forgiveness for failures. And they're such beautiful words for me and for you because in this room, we're a bunch of failures. We fall short in so many ways and yet Jesus calls and forgives failures. And I, I think of all the different things that we could say about Easter and there are so many different ways we could talk about this glorious truth of the resurrection, of all of those things, it, it ultimately has to come down to the personal recognition that the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection tell us that Christ Jesus forgives failures. He forgives sinners. He came to do just that. That is the glorious good news of the resurrection. There's so much more that it gives to us as well. I mean, because he is risen, he also has promised to raise us to be with him for eternity. In his presence, there will be fullness of joy at his right hand pleasures forevermore. But as we sit here today, I guarantee there are more than a few of you that have some failures in your minds of ways in which you have fallen short and you still beat yourself up over those things. And I wanna encourage you this morning, Jesus Christ forgives failures. And by saying failures, I mean sinners. He forgives sinners. He is alive and able to forgive. And he saves to the uttermost those who come to God by him. That is the glorious good news of Easter. And he has made the way open by the cross. We call it the way of Calvary. He has made the way open for you and I to boldly come before his throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace in our time of need.
when we feel like a failure, when we feel like a wretch, when we feel like a sinner, when we feel like what we actually are, it's there in that place that we are reminded that Jesus stands with open arms and he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's good news. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Jesus, I thank you for that good news. You are good. And Lord, we rejoice in your goodness. You are gracious. We praise you for your grace and mercy. Because there's not a single one of us standing here today who deserve your goodness, your blessing. But because of your great love with which you loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, even when we were failures, outspoken, loud mouth failures, you called to us because you call and forgive failures. And so God, I pray that you would, Lord, remind every single heart here today of that truth, that those words would get past all of the negative cognitions, all the negative things that say, no, not possible, not me, I'm too bad, I'm horrible, I'm wicked, you don't understand how bad I really am. All that complicated grief over who we are. God, would you be able to bypass that by this word of truth? You love and call and forgive sinful failures like us. Bypass all of that negative stuff in our hearts and our minds and draw people to yourself to trust in you and to call out to you. It may be as we're standing here today, you, like Peter, have some areas of complicated grief over your sin, your past failures in your mind and on your heart. I want you to know that Jesus has the ability and power to forgive those things. And not only does he have the ability and power to forgive those things, he has the desire to forgive those things. He does not want you to stand under the weight of that burden any longer. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my, I am gentle and meek. He wants to remove that burden from your life. That's what forgiveness does. It removes the burden. And so as we're standing here in prayer, if you today are one who needs to receive the grace and forgiveness of Christ, and you know that you've been carrying something that the Lord doesn't want you to carry any longer, Jesus wants to take that away. And if you wanna to pray to ask for his forgiveness and him to remove that from you, just lift up your hand high so I can see it. Anyone here today? God bless you, I see you there in the middle. Anyone else? Lift it way up high. All we're gonna do is pray, talk to Jesus, who is waiting for us to come to him with our burdens and our cares. He says, cast your cares upon me for I care for you. Lift your hand up high if that's you. You say, I need God's forgiveness and his grace. He is abundant in mercy. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He is slow to anger and gracious and merciful. If that's you today, I just want you to pray with me very simply, a prayer asking for God's grace and his forgiveness. Prayer is just simply talking to God and we believe that he hears us and he answers our prayers. So if that's you, just pray along with me. Dear Jesus, I need your grace and forgiveness. I thank you that you died on the cross in my place. 
and I thank you that you are alive and on the throne. I thank you that you have the power and the authority to forgive me of my sin. I confess my sin to you and I pray that you would forgive me and that you would cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Jesus, help me to walk in newness of life and to rejoice in the, in the abundant life that you give. And help me to follow you by faith. In Jesus' name.